Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's Scripture Reflections. There are 1.4 billion Catholics in the world. In October of 2023, 364 of them met with Pope Francis behind closed doors in the Vatican to renew the Church for the 21st century. If you ask the 1.4 billion Catholics what is the most pressing issue for the Church today, you'll get various responses. There are thousands of survivors around the world who have not had any justice. We must leave our faith in solidarity with the migrant and refugee. Without women, the Catholic Church simply would not exist. Doctrine cannot change, tradition cannot change, dogma cannot change. The church cannot change. Welcome in people of queer identity who still identify with Catholicism into the sort of the global church without condition or hesitation. If we don't act now and try to save the earth, we will just diminish. If you ask the single most influential Catholic among them, you might hear something different. The Synod of Bishops is the body that brings together bishops from across the world to help the Pope govern the Church. The Synod is about synodality. We have always repeated it, even if people have not believed us. Not that the particular issues most people are concerned about aren't important. On the contrary. But for Pope Francis, this thing called synodality is the best way of tackling not just one or two of them, but all of them. In this deep dive episode of Inside the Vatican, we'll examine what just happened at the first global meeting of the Synod on Synodality in October. I think it would be difficult to take part in anything this intensive and not be changed by it. We'll explain how exactly the conversations worked and why so many Synod members found them transformative. First, I thought it was a pious nonsense to talk in the spiritual conversation. I said, this is going to be a blessed headache. And we'll examine what came out of the Synod. We are well aware that this Synod will be evaluated on the basis of the perceivable changes that will result from it. And what's set to happen in this interim year? before the second and final gathering in October 2024. I'm Colleen Deli. This is Inside the Vatican. This October, there was a historic meeting at the Vatican. Not since Vatican II in the 1960s had there been so much anticipation for a synod of bishops. Well, the Catholic Church is doing something it's never done before, allowing women to vote in the upcoming bishops' meeting. I certainly was excited. Okay, it is 9.32 a.m. Central U.S. time on Wednesday, October 11th. I am leaving for the airport in a few hours, and 
I am just grabbing some last odds and ends to put in my suitcase for my trip to Rome this afternoon. I'm looking forward to doing a bunch of interviews while I'm in Rome. Looking forward to I just being, being part of this historic moment in the church, even just as an observer, just as a, a journalist kind of taking down the the first the first historical record of of this meeting. This October meeting had been years in the making, and it started with the input of ordinary Catholics around the world. Right from the beginning, the synod process followed this back-and-forth pattern of communication between the Vatican and the local churches. First, in the fall of 2021, Pope Francis called for listening sessions to be held in every diocese and community. The feedback from those sessions was then synthesized at regional and national levels before it was sent back to Rome to a small gathering of synod officials in Frascati, Italy. There, a working document was created and sent back out to churches now gathered in continental assemblies. Those in turn prepared reports that were sent back to synod officials in Rome, who then created the working document for the synod. For some members, the journey started even earlier. I remember suddenly getting a telephone call and later an email message from Sister Natalie Bequoff around March 2021, inviting me for a special group for discussing the present situation of the church. She never said what it was going to be. That's Father Vimal Tiramana. He's a redemptorist priest and a well-known theologian from Sri Lanka. He's played a lot of roles in the synod already. I have been involved closely with the whole synodal process ever since its inception in 2021. I can tell you, and you can imagine, so much of work. Of course, there's a sense of, you know, this privilege, and I could sense that it was going to be somewhat historic, as many of these meetings are. This is Bishop Bill McGratton. He's the Bishop of Calgary in Western Canada and the President of the Canadian Bishops' Conference. He was excited to be selected to attend, but he acknowledged a sense of apprehension around this synod. After two years of consultations, hopes and fears for what might change were running high. We all know that there was a lot of reporting about it. People had certain expectations and those were being expressed in the media. And there was sometimes a polarization as to maybe what they felt would be the outcome of the synod. After so much prep work, it was go time. Synod participants traveled to Rome from as far away as Sri Lanka, South Africa, and San Diego. They attended an ecumenical prayer vigil in St. Peter's Square, and then piled into buses headed to Sacrofano, about an hour outside Rome, for a pre-Synod retreat. So we gather for hope in the Church and for humanity. But my brothers and sisters, here is the difficulty. We have contradictory hopes. So how can we hope together? You're hearing a recording of Father Timothy Radcliffe, an English Dominican. He and Mother Maria Ignazia Angelini, an Italian Benedictine former abbess, led the retreat and acted as spiritual companions throughout the synod. They gave periodic talks to the participants. And while Father Radcliffe didn't shy away from the contentious topics... The Instrumentum Laboris mentions gay people, people in polygamous marriages, he also made clear that those hot topics weren't the main focus. So the foundation of everything we're going to do in the next three weeks 
should be the friendships we create with each other. It doesn't look like much, but it's by friendship we make the transition, as Madre Maria Gracia said, from I to we. That transition is hard enough to make when you have conflicting hopes. It's even harder when you're in a group of 365 people from all different languages and cultures, and in some cases from other Christian churches. The ecumenical prayer service before the Synod, the three-day retreat in Sacrofano, and the appointment of Father Radcliffe and Mother Angelini as spiritual guides were all new components to a synod. It was clear that the Pope and the synod organizers believed that this synod could only succeed in an environment of prayer. The retreat was also a time to introduce the roundtable discussion methods that participants would use in the synod hall. We'll come back to that later. Having dipped their toes in the water and gotten to know each other a little bit, the participants went back to Rome to begin the month's work. In nomine Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. It started, as Catholic events tend to do, with Mass. But this time, it wasn't just the vested priests and bishops processing into St. Peter's Square. The lay members of the Synod joined the procession, too. And if God's holy people with their shepherds from all over the world have expectations, hopes, and even some fears about the Synod we are beginning, let us continue to remember that this is not a political gathering, but a convocation in the spirit. Not a polarized parliament, but a place of grace and communion. Then the Synod participants filed over to the Synod Hall a few hundred yards away for their first session. Right away, we knew this synod was going to be different. The floor plan had changed. For the first time ever, members sat at round tables with 10 or 12 people. All eyes were on Pope Francis, who typically speaks at the beginning of synod gatherings and then listens for the most part. On this opening day, he reminded them yet again that the synod is not a parliament. He told them emphatically that the Holy Spirit is in charge and their job was to discern where the Spirit might be calling the Church to go. And then the Pope criticized the media coverage of previous synods, which, according to him, had reduced the gatherings to a few contentious issues. There are some hypotheses of this synod. What will they do? Is it priesthood for women? You know, all these things they say outside. So he made a bold request, asking participants to fast from speaking to the media, and essentially telling the media not to report on the conversations inside the hall, but rather to communicate that a deep listening was taking place. So I ask you, communicators, carry out your function well in the right way. The church and the people of goodwill should understand that also in the church the priority is listening. That's important. As we know, much of the media focuses on conflict. This is John Thavis, the former Rome bureau chief of Catholic News Service, talking with me in Rome. He's covered numerous synods. It is new, and in fact, journalists at the press briefings have been rather astounded that participants 
in fact, are following the rules. Yeah, they're not talking. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they're talking about generalities and process, but very, very little about content. And not surprisingly, journalists have complained. But there are risks here. And I think one of the risks I've seen, even in the press briefings, is that some of the questions by some of the reporters, who clearly have an agenda, are suggesting that this is all a scheme by Pope Francis to railroad through his own agenda without the world knowing and without a whole lot of real debate, uh, because, of course, the press is not privy to the debate. I don't think that's true, but I think he does leave himself open to that criticism somewhat. So we journalists had our complaints, but between the public speeches introducing the various umbrella topics, the regular spiritual and theological reflections, the daily press conferences, and hours of interviews both on and off record, we're now able to give you a thorough account of what happened at the October 2023 meeting of the Synod on Synodality. Let's start with the topics, or what Synod organizers called modules. There were four. The first module was on synodality. Basically, this was a time for participants to share what they learned from synod listening sessions in their own communities throughout the previous two years. Modules 2, 3, and 4 were on the synod's three sub-themes, communion, mission, and participation. To kickstart these modules, there would be a mass at the altar of the chair of St. Peter inside the Vatican. It's in the space behind the main altar, which would be tiny in any other church, but in St. Peter's Basilica, it easily seated 400 people, plus journalists, and a full choir, and a pipe organ. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Then there was a half-day general congregation, where the whole group would hear a number of official speeches introducing the module's topic. These would be spiritual reflections from Father Radcliffe and Mother Angelini. We should be formed for deeply personal encounters with each other, in which we transcend easy labels. A talk from Synod Secretary General Cardinal Mario Grech. He heads the Vatican Department for the Synod. Another talk from Synod Relator General Cardinal Jean-Claude Hollerich, who is basically in charge of framing the conversations. He was assigned this role by Pope Francis just for this three-year Synod on Synodality. My heartfelt hope is that during this month's work, we can develop a roadmap for the following year. And they'd hear a theological reflection on the module's topic. Accepting truth means there is always more truth to know. From there, they entered the discussions. This afternoon and tomorrow morning, we will work in the Circoli Minoris, according to the method of communal discernment inspired by conversation in the spirit that we have already practiced. The roundtables were given a particular methodology for their deliberations. It's called conversation in the spirit. A lot has been made of this, so let me explain how it works. Let's say you're a synod participant, and it's module two, communion. 
The question guiding this module is, how can we be more fully assign an instrument of union with God and the unity of all humanity? Big question, right? So the Synod organizers broke it into five sub-questions. One on how work for charity, justice, and care for creation nourishes communion. One on the question of reconciling love and truth. One on the gift of diversity in the church. One on the relationship with other Christian churches. And one on interreligious dialogue. You, as a Synod member, can't discuss all of those in the four or five days of Module 2. So maybe you're coming in with a particular expertise, or you come from a church where one topic is especially important. You get to submit your preference for which of the five questions you want to discuss during the module. So let's say you pick the one on love and truth. You're assigned a table where people are discussing that specific question in your language. There are 10 or 12 people at your table, mostly bishops, but it's diverse. You look around and see every continent represented. You've already prepared and prayed with the question and have written down what you want to say. The facilitator welcomes you, there's a prayer, and everyone introduces themselves with what name they'd like to go by. You also elect a note taker and someone who will present a synthesis of your conversation to the full assembly afterwards. I know, it's a lot to keep track of, but here's where it really starts to get interesting. Now you engage in three rounds with your table. Round one. Each person shares for three minutes the insights that they gained while praying and discerning with the question. No one's allowed to respond or interject. Periodically, there's a pause for three or four minutes of collective silence to digest what you've heard. Round two. Each of you at the table gets a chance to share what touched you and what challenged you in what you heard in the first round. Maybe there's a common thread. Maybe something made you uncomfortable. This isn't a time for debate, but for reflecting back what you've heard from one another. Again, periodically, there are pauses for silent prayer and reflection. And then, round three. This is where the conversation gets a little more open. The table discusses and documents where their thoughts are converging, where they're diverging, and what specific questions are coming up, along with what proposals they suggest for moving forward on the topic. The goal is to identify what is the Holy Spirit telling us? When the big group reassembles, the tables share what emerged, and then there's a time when anyone can request to address the topics to the full assembly. The tables could then tweak their findings one last time and submit them, no more than two pages, to the Synod's executive team for inclusion in the final synthesis report. At that point, the next module was introduced, the tables were shuffled, and they did it all over again. Whew, that is a lot of sitting and listening. I should say they also took 30-minute coffee breaks every morning and afternoon. So you might be wondering, what's the point of this rigorous methodology? Are people trying to find common ground? Here's how Cardinal Hollerich explained it to the Assembly. We have all ways to keep in mind that the Senate is not a parliament. In parliament, politicians discuss text A, proposed by the majority. The opposition proposes text B. In the best cases, some points of B will be integrated into A. It is a narrow majority which decides what the whole population has to accept. We have one text to start from. 
the instrumentum laboris. It is the fruit of the synodal process which has involved the whole people of God. It should not be a battle between position A and B. Through genuine discernment, the Holy Spirit opens our minds and our hearts to new positions, leaving A and B behind. The idea for these kinds of conversations at roundtables actually came from the synodal process in Asia. Here's Father Vamal again. You see, the continental assemblies had their own ways of doing things. I heard North America had online and all this. And I verified from Cardinal Mario Gray himself at the end of the Synod. He said, of course, we learned it from Asia. So the Asian Continental Assembly of the People of God in February this year, they used this roundtable method. But these people used it and bettered it. It is at the service of a dialogue, a real dialogue between members of the body of Christ, all gathering because of the, their baptism. Father Olivier Poquillon is a French Dominican priest and one of 10 members of the Methodology Commission for the Synod. They've been studying and experimenting with methods for effective conversations all over the world for the past few years. But their main task in the October Synod was to create a physical space and a small group format that would facilitate the kind of listening and discernment that Pope Francis was looking for. I was in charge of methodology, meaning how do we organize the setting, for example. The setting uh, traditionally in the Synod, it's like in a university, old-fashioned university. You've got one guy speaking and 300 guys listening. And so we said, that's not what we want. This is not synodality. There was a battle internally, he said, over moving the gathering from the old university-style auditorium to the Paul VI audience hall, a much larger and more open space. So apparently, if the Pope is asking for a synod on synodality, it's because we've got to adjust or to improve some things, some practices. And this is why we moved to the Paul VI hall, and there we removed the chairs and put the tables for the people to be able to talk to one another, not as a master and servants, but as a friend is talking to his friend, according to the Gospel. One of the things that emerged from the global consultation process that preceded the General Assembly here was, we don't know how to listen very well to each other. This is Catherine Clifford, a lay synod member who teaches theology at St. Paul University in Ottawa, Canada. We don't know how to listen carefully, deeply, and allow ourselves to be changed by what we hear. So the process itself is, in a sense, a bit of a laboratory to help us all learn to listen. First, I thought it was a pious nonsense to talk in the spiritual conversation. I said, this is going to be a blessed headache. Here's Father Vimal again. If my mother were alive, she would have said, Vimal, you are still the stubborn fellow you were holding on to your opinion. So I have that tendency to believe in what I am convinced of. Now these round tables challenged me a lot. As the Synod progressed, members started speaking positively about these conversations in the Spirit. Not only were they effective for difficult conversations, but they were also changing the members at a deeper level. You're right, it was very rigorous. 
Here's Bishop Bill McGratton again. He likened his own presence in the Synod to the people in the crowds that followed Jesus. Not outspoken, and not in the inner circle, but watching and listening attentively. And I also saw a growing confidence, a growing trust, especially on the part of the lay, because they weren't necessarily the majority. And I really then sort of recognized that this amount of time that they were afforded to be in discussion also allowed them to gain a legitimate sense of confidence and trust and conviction to share what they believe was very important for the bishops to hear. This method and the very sitting arrangement made me feel that it's not Vimal talking to another person, that person talking to another. No, it's through them, through me, the Holy Spirit talking what he wants to say. It became a discipline, dear Colleen, in my life. I'm trying now, even in my classes here, in my lectures, uh, in my way of doing things, I'm trying my best to follow that method, to listen. The process itself has been a learning process, and we want to bring this experience back to the local churches. I think it would be difficult to take part in anything this intensive and not be changed by it. After the break, what Synod participants listened to? Inside the arguments, the emotions, and the scramble to write a synthesis document. Stay with us. The more the Synod discussed, the more it got into complicated questions and disagreements. Uh, good morning. Um, my name is Elise Allen with the Crux News site. Grazie, Marco Politi, Il Fatto Quotidiano blog. Hi, I'm Monica Dumit from the Catholic Weekly. Is there a, a promise to adhere to Catholic teaching during their discussions? When it comes to the inclusion of women and members of the LGBTQ community, um, specifically when it comes to the women's diaconate. Or do these conversations still feel quite polarized in the Synod Hall? But before we get into all that, it's really important to understand that this synod was never meant to debate or decide particular questions. All the conversations inside the synod, even the heated ones, happened within the wider context of what it means to be a more synodal church. That was the topic. For all the heated conversations, there was way more agreement and common ground. For example, everyone agreed that the church is by nature missionary and that the poor must have a privileged place in a synodal church. They were practically unanimous on the need to welcome and integrate migrants in a world that dehumanizes and scapegoats them, and the same for responding urgently to the climate crisis. They also agreed that much greater responsibility should be given to women and lay people in the church. But other issues did in fact stir debate. Like, remember that question about truth and love during the module on communion? The time has come to address the theme of Module 2. That second module tackled the five questions in Section B1 in the working document, including our question, how a synodal church can make credible the promise that love and truth will meet. Somebody told me, with B1, the tensions will rise. We are not afraid of tensions. Tensions are part of the process, as long 
as we consider ourselves to be sisters and brothers walking together. How could a seemingly abstract question related to love and truth cause tensions? Well, think of it this way. How concretely do we balance proclaiming the truth in church teachings with pastoral love and acceptance, especially for those who don't feel welcome in the church? That questions, and the conversations it sparked concerning LGBTQ people in particular, caused emotions to run high. People shared heart-wrenching and sometimes personal stories. Here's Timothy Radcliffe, the retreat leader, speaking to the assembly after module two. Many of us wept when we heard of that young woman who committed suicide because she was bisexual and did not feel welcomed in the church. I wept. I hope it changed us. And then there were the questions about what a synod of bishops that included laypeople meant for the bishops. Was their role or authority being watered down? In the course of that discussion, one prelate reportedly stormed out of the room, saying, this is not a synod of bishops. There was another instance in which someone refused to sit next to another person with whom they vehemently disagreed. They left the meeting, and when they returned the next day, they sat at the same table but refused to speak. Beneath these impassioned moments and intense debates were differing ways of approaching the church's tradition. Some synod members believed the church should be much more open to grow in its understanding of the gospel and, if necessary, change the way it teaches. Others believe that the church must resist postmodern secular trends and insisted that doctrine cannot change. You could see how a very practical question, like how to welcome and include LGBTQ people, might spark a real debate. There were a couple of persons in all the groups that I sat during the four weeks who were holding on to their opinions very firmly. And they mentioned very often this gay, lesbian, women's ordination, these sort of secular trends, we should not open ourselves. Remember, Vimal is a moral theologian. His day job is to teach people about the Catholic tradition. Finally, I had to be a bit blunt in the third round and say, I think even the so-called postmodern secular movements or trends, we need to encounter them. The history of the church has been that. Look at human rights. The church at that time, when uh, the American Revolution, French Revolution took place, the church was on the other side. Church was opposed to human rights. But later, church became, 100 years later, the champion of such human rights. So we need not repeat such mistakes in history. We need to see what is good, what is evil, discern. Having listened to you over these past three weeks, I've had the impression that some of you are struggling with the notion of tradition in the light of your love of truth. You are not the first to struggle with this. What you're hearing now is the theological reflection given by Australian Father Ormond Rush in the last module of the Synod while the final document was being drafted. He situated the underlying tension about tradition within the context of the Second Vatican Council in the 1960s, where the exact same tension occurred. Quoting the Vatican II documents and Joseph Ratzinger, the future Pope Benedict XVI, Father Ormond distinguished between a static understanding of tradition and a dynamic understanding. 
And Dave Urban, and this is important for understanding synodality and the very purpose of this synod, this divine revelation is presented as an ongoing encounter in the present and not just something that happened in the past. After that, everybody who talked about doctrine suddenly were quite well measured in their statements. Om did a wonderful job, I must say it in public. But uh, the beauty, Colin, was uh, we could agree to disagree in this system. And no one was a bitter enemy. Everybody could go afterwards for a dinner that night, sit and have a cup of tea or a cup of coffee, or have a little drink at a bar. So that atmosphere was very good, in spite of disagreements. Many Synod members have confirmed this good spirit among them. The methodology of deep and respectful listening allowed disagreements, even profound theological disagreements, to be aired without breaking down relationships. Our colleague, Father James Martin, who's known for his advocacy for LGBTQ Catholics, even took a selfie and exchanged books with Cardinal Gerard Muller, the former head of the Vatican's doctrine office and a vocal critic of what he's called LGBT ideology infiltrating the church. Meanwhile, in the press conferences, which the Vatican started holding daily halfway through, officials were tight-lipped about any of the debates inside. Good afternoon, buonasera. So listening was once again highlighted throughout today's session, morning session. At each press conference, three or four Synod members would be present to share their experiences and answer questions. With almost every participant following the Pope's request to fast from the media, this was effectively the only opportunity for journalists to get answers on the record. The Synod members often repeated two things. First, that it was inspiring to meet so many Catholics from around the world. For me, the Synod on Synodality has been very encouraging and inspiring. I found it as a space of encounter of diversity and relationality. And second, that they felt the method was working, and that they were really being guided by the Holy Spirit in their small group discussions. The Holy Spirit's going to take us places, and we don't know where that's it, but we have to fully trust in the Holy Spirit. The journalists, who had been told about the disagreements off-record by many Synod members, were growing frustrated with the same messages every day and the lack of access to the small group reports, the details about the conversations. The Bureau Chief for Catholic News Service spoke for a lot of us journalists when she asked this question. Writing for Catholic newspapers, um, kind of with readers who invested in this process, at the end, I'm going to tell them that the symbol of what was accomplished is the round table. I mean, they want to know that the issues they raised and that are listed in the Instrumentum Laboris are issues that are being taken seriously, even passionately. And um, this idea that, well, you know, look at our round tables, I, I don't think that's going to satisfy people who invested in this process and are not in the room and are not being able to see the results of the, round, the small group work. Um, 
there are people who are seriously concerned about the status of women in the church or an attitude of welcoming or not welcoming LGBTQ people. I mean, those aren't just journalistic inventions. Those are issues that were raised repeatedly at the local diocesan, national, and continental level. And to write it off as a journalistic question, I think is, um, yeah, not very nice. No, scusate, però, se, se la domanda è rivolta... The question got applause from the press corps and an unusually impassioned response from the director of Vatican Communications. He said it was false to say that the Senate isn't producing results when the final report was in the works. One of the panelists, a Jesuit priest from Nigeria, responded. You used two very interesting words, seriously and passionately. Are these issues being discussed in the synodal hall seriously and passionately, I testify, yes. That was about as much on-the-record information that journalists would get from Synod members and the Vatican communications team. Inside the hall, the pressure was mounting on the drafting team to produce a synthesis document of substance, something new and inspiring, something that would prove to the people of God that this entire process was worth it. We're going to take one more break, but when we come back, how that document miraculously came together, and what it says concerning the issues that Catholics care about. Stay with us. Good morning, dear sisters, dear brothers. I think we all agree in one point when I say that we are tired. The last few days of the Synod were frantic. How do you synthesize all those roundtable discussions on all those different topics? How do you ensure that everyone's voice is represented? Cardinal Hollerich had already acknowledged that the pressure was on. We are well aware that this Synod will be evaluated on the basis of the perceivable changes that will result from it. A week earlier, he admitted it wasn't just the secular media interested in possible changes on a few hot-button issues, but that ordinary Catholics want to know what synodality and co-responsibility will mean for them concretely. And they are wondering how this is possible in a church that is still not very synodal, where they feel that sometimes their opinion does not count and a few or just one person decides everything. And then, out of the blue, on October 25th, just days before the Synod would vote on the synthesis document, the journalist received an email from the Holy See press office. It said, Intervention of the Holy Father Francis. There was no explanatory note, no introduction, just the text of an impassioned speech Francis had given that day inside the Synod Hall. It was a little bit ironic. Everyone else's interventions had been kept secret at Pope Francis's request. And here was the Pope breaking his own rule, releasing his intervention to the public. The speech was a short but scathing denunciation of clericalism, a pervasive mindset that priests and bishops are separate from or more important than other Catholics. Francis called it a whip, a scourge, a form of worldliness that defiles and damages the face of the church. 
The faithful people, he said, patiently endure the scorn, mistreatment, and marginalization of institutionalized clericalism. I remember that afternoon. In fact, I was surprised and pleasantly surprised because that sort of a statement was very welcome. In fact, people applauded. It's not the first time Pope Francis has railed against clericalism. But everyone outside the Synod was speculating about what prompted this unexpected intervention right before the end of the Synod. Father Vamal was in the room. It was a direct response to some of the interventions, some of the ways some people were talking. For a vast majority, I would say for about 90 to 95%, it had a huge impact. It reconfirmed or reinforced what they have been already saying. In the last few days of the Synod, the schedules were changing constantly, usually with about 12 hours notice. Over 1,000 amendments were proposed to the first draft. I would say the Synod, this report, I don't know, it's a miracle, because within 48 to 72 hours they produced it. But it's a miracle. On the final day, the 40-page document was read aloud in the Synod Hall. And every paragraph passed with a two-thirds majority, the threshold for approval. Here's Bishop Bill McGratton again. The experience of hearing the final report read for three hours was um, a time, I think, that people could hear and recognize that what was discussed and contributed from the table eventually did find its way in terms of text and wording and themes in the synthesis report. And so it was a sense of consolation. They made the deadline, and all the journalists dove into the text to see what was in it and what was not. Not surprisingly, one of the key terms they looked out for was LGBTQ. Interestingly, it was absent. Instead, the synthesis document says that certain issues related to identity and sexuality are controversial in the church. It says that sometimes our anthropological categories aren't able to grasp the complexity of people's experience or scientific knowledge. It says they require greater precision, further study, without giving into simplistic judgments. In an interview with my colleague Jerry O'Connell after the Synod, Cardinal Blaise Supich of Chicago said he was surprised that the term wasn't referenced considering how much it was discussed in the Synod. Now let's talk about what was included. One of the big topics, as expected, was women. The Synod said it was urgent for women to be included in decision-making processes and assume roles of responsibility in pastoral care and ministry. It said canon law should be changed to provide for this. It also called for women to be judges in all canonical trials. On the question of women deacons, the Synod acknowledged divergent opinions. But they requested that two secret reports from previous Vatican commissions that studied women deacons be presented to the Synod for further discussion. Kathy Clifford mentioned other major issues relating to the just treatment of women, abuses, and economic inequality. There's a host of issues that were surfaced in every continent among the priority issues was the need for greater respect, recognition, and integration of women's participation and women's gifts at every level of the church. Another recurring theme was the need for formation, not just for seminarians, but for all members of the church, and how to take on this co-responsibility for the church's mission. And finally, there was a big section on bishops. 
The Synod recommended new structures and processes for reviewing a bishop's ministry, a review of the top-secret criteria used for appointing bishops, and more study on the connection between governance and ordination, which are already starting to be separated by Pope Francis in the Roman Curia. As we've seen, exactly how synodality and co-responsibility affect the authority of bishops was hotly debated in the Synod. But all of these recommendations were voted for overwhelmingly. I followed up with Bishop Bill McGratton about this. I found us to be very free and, and open to be sharing some of this. I don't see why, you know, someone who is being called to a leadership role, whether it be a priest or a bishop, why we can't be that sort of transparent and, and open to realize that it's important uh, for us in exercising and being a disciple and a follower of Christ to make sure that we do it with integrity and that we're open to being accountable. All of these reflections about the exercise of authority are legitimate. Here's Kathy again. I actually don't think this takes away anything from the authority of the bishops. In fact, if it's done rightly, it should strengthen the authority of the bishops. Tell me what you mean by that. Well, I, I think we need to distinguish between power and authority. You can have power and exercise it and have absolutely no authority or not be respected by a community or people won't be willing to receive the decisions if they haven't been brought on board along the way. So I, I actually think that when people have been part of the discerning and decision-making process, they will recognize the decision as the fruit of a consensus within the community, and it will have more weight and more authority than if the bishop made a decision in isolation from the people. The consensus was that bishops should exercise their ministry in more synodal ways. But the presence of non-bishops in the synod, with equal say and the right to vote, still raises the question, was this a synod of bishops or a synodal assembly? I really do think that this is an area that needs further clarification. Is Are we going to go forward with a synod of an assembly representing the church? Uh, are we going to have that in relationship to the synod of bishops, knowing that collegiality is a very important theological reality in the role of the bishops in terms of teaching with the Holy Father? So I think there's a lot of area for exploration? Is it in conformity with the Second Vatican Council and our tradition? Perhaps the most urgent recommendation from the Synod was for planning the next one, which reconvenes in October 2024. In the coming 11 months, or now 10 and a half months hardly, what are we to do? What next? I think that's a crucial question. A crucial question which, at the end of the Synod, had no clear answer. One popular idea was that the bishops who attended the meeting should return to their dioceses and hold similar conversations in the spirit to acquaint Catholics with the method and ultimately have it inform their decisions. Interestingly, many participants, especially Africans and Latin Americans, pointed out that synodality intuitively makes sense to them, because within many of their cultures, people already discern and decide things together in small communities. The Synod also said that before the next assembly, there should be institutional spaces established for communal discernment on controversial issues that are confidential, promote frank discussion, and involve people directly affected by them. And then there's this question of priestly formation in particular. 
the Synod called for a worldwide consultation of people responsible for the formation of priests in the next 11 months to address how the synodal process is being received and to propose changes that would promote a synodal style of leadership in priests. Bishop Bill McGratton again. I think it's recognizing that the church has not done what it should in providing adequate formation and helping them to understand synodality and how that impacts preparing oneself for living and serving in the church, whether they be a priest or a religious or even as a lay person. So I really see that whole section of formation and the ratio fundamentalis as an area that's going to require a lot more work and further consideration. And I think that, that it needs to be done. The Synod also recommended establishing a commission of theologians and canon lawyers to look at some of the pressing issues that might require a reform or updating of church law. There should be serious thought given to changing canon law, changing structures, ecclesial structures. Otherwise, it's like pouring new wine into old wine skins. For example, do the sacrament of holy orders and jurisdiction need to be inextricably linked? Or could the judicial responsibility for an abuse case be put in the hands of a separate body rather than leaving it to a bishop? And in very strong words, the Synod suggests legislating for pastoral councils, that is, making lay leadership in pastoral councils mandatory in every local church. That's a lot. But suffice it to say that the possibilities this synod opened are endless. I asked Catherine Clifford what was next. Well, stay tuned, <laughs> because um, hopefully when, when these bishops go home and they talk to their brothers in the Episcopal conferences and they talk to their clergy, we will begin to see a stronger commitment to this listening culture, this synodal culture. The first thing we should expect to see is a whole lot of work and reflection about structures of church governance, structures and practices of church governance. Those kinds of changes don't happen overnight, so I would invite people also to be patient, but to be frank, and to speak to their leaders, speak to their pastors, speak to their bishops. The only way forward is together. Some of the, the bishops would like to sort of have Rome or the dicasteries begin to be, you know, the point in which they are directing it. But I think the principle of subsidiarity requires certain local churches to be really the, the protagonist to begin this, this change. And so I think it will be front and center. At the Canadian conference, we'll be talking about synodality each and every time we meet. Exactly what happens next is still unclear. But without a doubt, the participants had, for the most part, been deeply changed by this experience. And although they were exhausted, they left Rome confident in the methodology, overwhelmingly convinced that synodality is the way forward for Catholicism, and conscious of their responsibility to get others on board. We shall have some gardening to do during these 11 months, my brothers and sisters, to nurture the tender plant that is this synod. Will we speak fertile, hope-filled words or words that are destructive and cynical? Will our words nurture the crop or be poisonous? Will we be the gardeners of the future or trapped in old sterile conflicts? 
we each choose. The final document talked about a lot more than we were able to cover in this episode. Notably, that the new face of the poor in our world is wrought by violence and war, and a synodal church must put them at the center. The need for liturgical language to be more accessible. The work of decentralization and respecting diverse structures and practices in local churches. The challenges of evangelizing in places where missionary work and colonialism have been intertwined. The desire for separated Christian churches to agree on a common date to celebrate Easter and a strong call to listen to abuse survivors and for concrete acts of penitence. We have a lot of great summaries and analysis from our team at America on these issues, and I'll link to them in the show notes. I'll also include a link to the full synthesis document, which is well worth a read. Inside the Vatican is a production of America Media. This deep dive episode was produced by Sebastian Gomes. Production assistance for Maggie Van Dorn and Delaney Coyne. Audio engineering by Ashley Spillane. Please consider becoming a digital subscriber to American Media at the link in our show notes. It's the best way to support our work here on Inside the Vatican and all of America's Vatican coverage. And if you enjoyed this deep dive episode, maybe it taught you something new about the Synod, please share it with a friend. It really helps spread the word about our show. For America Media, I'm your host and producer, Colleen Deli. We'll see you next time. Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's scripture reflections.